So 2 Samuel chapter 21, and uh, I'm going to read from verses 1 through 14. It says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he has put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and for Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, Where shall I, What should I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I should do for you? And they said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni, and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in front of, in, in, excuse me, in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it over herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Beth-san, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day that the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son, Jonathan, who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son, Jonathan, in the land of Benjamin in Zela, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. That is the word of the Lord. Amen. So as we look at this passage, I, I tell you, the Lord has just handed this to us on this on this day. Uh, he's handed it to me to make my job easier as far as an application is concerned. Uh, today's passage, one thing that, that we're looking at here, and it, if you're following along, and, and we've been going chapter by chapter, and it's been uh, consecutive, you know, year after year as we've been going along here in chapter 21, and, and maybe the next few chapters, um, there's a... a disagreement, not a disagreement, but there's some confusion as to when 
this actually occurred. Um, some theologians believe that we're actually backing up, that this is a, a memory, if you will. We're backing up, and, and this is a timeline not after the rebellion of Sheba, which is chapter 20, but that 21 actually goes back to the time period of after Solomon's birth, and uh, but before Amnon rapes Tamar. And so that's kind of where this is situated. How much impact does that have on us today? And what we're going to learn from the text? Absolutely nothing. Um, it's just a, a fact for you as, as you follow along in, in this book. So biblical historians question the timeline of these verses. There is one thing that is clear, and that is the purpose of this verses, or what this verse, uh, or what these verses are communicating. This passage screams about the need that we have, that you and I have as people who sin, or I can rephrase that another way, uh, the need that we as sinful people have for atonement. That's that's what this passage screams about. Uh, the blessing of atonement, God's gift of grace to us. Uh, to atone for something, it means to make amends or reparations for a sin. Uh, we would, the way we would put that nowadays is it, it means to pay back, uh, pay back for a wrong. So to atone for something means to buy it back, to pay it back, to pay reparations for something that has been done wrong. When you look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament continually speaks to uh, or really points out the need that mankind has for someone to atone for their sin. We see it over and over and over, even at the very beginning in Genesis, where Adam and Eve sinned, and, and, and from that point on, it's just like man needs help. Man needs somebody to atone. And then these, all these Old Testament people, the, the kings, the, uh, the soldiers, the, the, the priests, and on and on and on, all these mighty men of the Old Testament we see them, how they rise to power and how they rise to their potential and then they just fall down. Some of them don't even rise it, like they are beginning to rise and then they fall to sin. One after another, they fall to sin. And so it continually points to we need that one to atone for the sins of God's people. Well, in the New Testament, Christ is revealed. Immediately, he's revealed as the one who was to come. He was the one who would atone for the sins of God's people. So the New Testament reveals Christ as the Savior. Well, what's awesome is when you have a gospel, an explicit gospel lesson in an Old Testament passage. Because the two are connected. They're not separated. Uh, the, the, the whole Bible is, is a book about Christ. Right? It's, it's all together. If we're going to call it a book, it's a book about Christ. It's pointing to the Lord. The Old Testament is pointing forward, right? So we need to understand that there are gospel lessons, explicit gospel lessons in the Old Testament. And we have one here today. Um, the, first thing, the first thing we see is that we see Israel has a need for atonement. And the passage begins by highlighting a problem. If, if atonement is needed, that means that there is an issue. There is a problem. And so the problem is a wrongdoing. And we see that in verse 1. It says that there was a famine in the days of David for three years. 
Now, for us, it's really hard to understand the impact of a famine. Uh, we, we, we live in a culture and a society that, that we really don't deal with that. We, we, we have an advanced culture, an advanced society, to where that is not something that we deal with here and now. Although in the world, there are still, that is still impactful in different places. Uh, but for us, it's like, okay, well, I understand what a famine is, but how difficult is it to live through a famine? Well, if, if I preach to 1230, some of you are about to die in your seats because you're hungry. Now, imagine, imagine going months and months without having a, a, a three square meals. It, it would be a different story. You know, so although we can't really imagine it, um, we, we, can, we can see the difficulty and the struggle and, and, and the suffering that would occur in a famine for three years. Now, this was not a, a famine where it was broken up, where it was like maybe four months of famine and then two or three months of, plent, you know, of, of plentiful and, and, and another four months of famine. The Bible says it was year after year. So you have three consecutive years of famine. So David sought the Lord. He sought the face of the Lord. And here's what the Lord said to him. He said, there is blood guilt on Saul and his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the problem and the issue was that there was a three-year famine and famines were destructive and they were seen as judgments from God. When you look in the Old Testament and there's a famine, it was God disciplining or, 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 or punishing a group of people. For the Israelites, it was, it was a discipline for them. And that's why David sought the face of God. He recognized that something was happening, something that was providential. And he sought the face of God for an answer. He wanted to find out why God was disciplining Israel through a three-year famine. Now, David discovered that there was blood guilt on the land. And the, the blood guilt was because of King Saul and what he had done to an innocent group of people. And he, What's, what's real interesting about this whole thing is that, first of all, uh, the Gibeonites were not Israelites. And the, the text clearly says that in verse 2. Uh, the text goes on to describe, to, to tell us, that these were not Israelites. But there was a special connection between the Israelites and the Gibeonites. See, Saul had tried, when he was king, he had tried to kill and really he tried to eradicate the Gibeonites. He he tried to commit genocide on th this group of people. And he did this without the command of God. It wasn't as if God said, go, like when God told Joshua, go and, and destroy the people of the land, uh, for they sinned against the Lord. And it, this wasn't that case. The Bible says here in our text that Saul did this for the zeal of Israel. So in other words, Saul was doing this not for God, but he was doing this for himself. He was doing this for his kingdom at the time. So he goes and he kills these Gibeonites. He wasn't commanded by God to do so. In fact, uh, Saul broke a peace treaty uh, that the Gibeonites had with Israel. And that's what made the situation even worse, is the fact that he went after them and, and he broke this treaty that, that they had made with the Lord. And that's also... Uh, not with the Lord, but with Israel. Um, that's also in verse 2. 
the actual treaty that, that the Gibeonites made with Israel goes back all the way to Joshua. They actually made this treaty, and, 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 and Joshua allowed them to live in the land peaceably. And so they were there until Saul became king, and he wanted to eradicate them, and he started to kill them all. Because there was innocent blood spilled at the hands of the king, God cursed the land with this famine. And the curse was, at this point, had lasted up to three years. Now, when you look at the word blood guilt, blood guilt incurred from the unjustifying killing of a human or an animal, but here in this case, of a human, and it could only be atoned for with the blood of the accountable or their representative. So in this instance, Blood guilt, especially when we're talking about murder, because blood guilt could be applied to several different situations. But specifically, or, or especially, it was applied to murder when someone was murdered. Um, an animal sacrifice would not do. Because we know Israel's, their, their, their whole system of animal sacrifices and how those were, they sacrificed animals for the atonement of their sins. Uh, they did this continually day after day, year after year. But even for an unjust killing uh, of, of murder, an animal sacrifice would not do. The law required a life for a life. And the only way for this famine to be lifted was for someone to, play, or to, to pay the blood, the blood guilt for Saul. That was the only way that this was going to be lifted. So in verse 3, David, after finding out what was causing the famine, he goes to the Gibeonites, or they come to him. And he says, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? Now, we, we heard that phrase last week, the heritage of the Lord. That points to uh, the land of Israel, the people of God. So how can we make up for what King Saul did all those years ago? Uh, King Saul was dead now, but David, he had to be the one who would make things right between Israel and the king. Now, what's interesting is that initially the Gibeonites declined to accept anything from David. But David was persistent because he knew that the Lord would not relent on his discipline if nothing was done. Something had to be done. And so David was persistent and through his persistence, it brought out their request finally. Look at verses 5 and 6. They said to the king, the man who consumed us, they're, they're talking about King Saul there, and planned to destroy us so that we would have no place in all the territory of Israel. That man let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord. And the king said, all right, we'll do it. We'll agree to those terms. Now, to us, that is just, that's crazy. We, we, we read that, and we, it's hard for us to understand that. And there's a special reason why it's hard for us to understand that. Because we have one who's atoned for our sins. We have one who has died in our place. 
We have one who has died for every corruptible, evil thing we have done. But, but here, the people are living according to the law. And the law says, if you take a life, there is blood guilt. You need something to be able to wipe away that stain. You need something to remove the guilt that's on the people. So this was common for them. This was according to the law. This wasn't, even though it sounds crazy to us, this was not abnormal. And that's why David says, we, we, will, we will do it. That is in accordance with the Torah. That is in accordance with the law of God. Now, this passage, it highlighted the fact that, or it highlights the fact that the holiness of God deals with every sin of mankind. Every single sin. God deals with it. There's not one sin that goes by. If you're a Christian, you are disciplined for your sin. If you are not a Christian, then you will face the wrath of God for your sin. Even now, the book of Romans proclaims that those who are not in Christ, their depravity is a product of God's wrath. They are lost in their sins. They are completely lost. They cannot see the light. They cannot see the goodness of God. They cannot and will not. That is God's wrath upon them while they live. And yet, they still need to face his wrath when they die. But for us, for those who are in Christ, not one sin goes by, even though we think that, that only we know or no one will find out. God knows. And he deals with every single sin. This sin was committed by Saul so many years ago. See, the Bible proclaims, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He is thrice holy, meaning he is completely or utterly holy. This sin was not committed by David or the people that were living at the time. But they were partakers in the guilt of Saul and they suffered the consequences of the blood guilt. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, we, that's us, right? That's us. Have you ever wondered, man, why do I get blamed for what Adam and Eve did? The Bible is very clear about that. We're all guilty. We're all guilty. That Adam was the figurehead, was our figurehead. When he sinned, as, as I said, of the people, we became partakers in Adam's guilt when he sinned. When he became corrupted, we became corrupted. And, and we suffer the consequences of that sin, just like the Israelites were suffering the consequences of the blood guilt. The famine had spread to the whole nation. Everybody was suffering because of it. God had not forgotten Saul's sin, and the day of retribution was at hand. As the Bible says, vengeance is the Lord, and that is always the case. Therefore, Israel needed someone to atone for their sin, and in this instance, the lot fell on Saul's family. Now, the problem with that, we've already, we talked about the Israel's need for atonement, 
Atonement is found, but it's only a temporary atonement. It, it, it only got them past this point. When you look at the Torah, it required blood for blood. Saul was no longer alive. David, he, he, he had to grab onto this. He had to take charge of this. He had to do something about it because he was the king of Israel. And David would have to choose Saul's bloodline to atone for Saul's sin. Now, right away, our pastor says that David, by the way, there are two Mephibosheths here. It's a little confusing if you read it. But automatic, or right away, the, the pastor says that David spared Mephibosheth, and it says that that Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son because of the covenant that he had made with Jonathan. So he spared Mephibosheth. Uh, he was the one with the lame feet. He was Saul's grandson. Uh, so he spared him due to the covenant. But David gave two sons of Saul's concubine and then also five sons from Merib, who was Saul's daughter. These are the men that he chose to represent Saul, to represent, actually to represent the Gibeonites who were killed by Saul. Uh, and they would be given for that blood guilt. Uh, look at verse 9. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, what's interesting about verse 9 is that verse 9 suggests that these men were put to death in public for everybody to see. That's, that's one thing. And that also, this was done before the Lord, that phrasing that actually possibly might be pointing to a religious ceremony. So they were, it was done in public and it was done religiously. Because this was, this was to be an atonement for a wrongdoing. This was to please the Lord. Therefore, that's why it was done before the Lord. Now, there are some other things going on here because the public display of their execution, it would accomplish a couple of things. Number one, it would, it would cause people to fear God, right? Because you're looking up there and you're seeing it happen and you're thinking, I don't want to be up there. Not only do I not want to be up there, but I don't want to do something that's going to cause somebody that I love to be up there for me because I didn't pay the blood guilt myself. So, number one, it, it put fear in the hearts of people, but it also made you think twice about sin. As the Israelites and as everybody looked on, it was, it was a reminder of the, the, the damage that sin causes and the call for them to be holy as God is holy. Now, the number of Saul's descendants chosen, we can see that as symbolic. Seven in the Bible is a complete number. It is a complete payment of the blood guilt for Saul's sin. Now, it doesn't match life for life in there. Therefore, that it had to be symbolic. Saul had killed many of the Gibeonites. But the Gibeonites agreed seven would be a symbolic representation of the people who had died. Now, afterward we see the tragic scene of the loss of life. 
that the people suffered through. Because sometimes we read over the text and, and we, we, we don't think about the details of, we read about what happened, but we forget about to think about the details of what happened. And, and imagine yourself there. Imagine that was somebody, that was one of your sons, one of your grandchildren, one of your grandsons that was killed. And, and how, how difficult of a situation it was to, to see that tragic scene. So there is a, a loss of life. This is a tragic scene. This, this, this is something that is horrible that the people have to go through. This is something that is suffered by them. Verse 10, for the mothers out here, your heart goes out to Rizpah, the daughter of Aya. She took sackcloth and spread it over herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. The Bible says that she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or beasts of the field by night. See, with everything that had gone on, the bodies were laying, slain, exposed to the elements. Not only the elements, but they were exposed to wild animals as well. And what the text tells us is that Rispa, that she covered and guarded the bodies until their burial. She sat there and, and, and guarded them. Her actions of love prompted David to act mercifully. He not only recovered their bodies, but David also, since the blood guilt was paid for what Saul had done, David also went and recovered the bones of Saul and Jonathan. They were in another country. They were not in the land of Israel. He brought them into the land of Benjamin, who that was their tribe, and he put them in their final resting place. And it's very interesting that the blood guilt wasn't lifted until all of that was done. The scripture goes back and says that after the bones were brought back and they were put into, uh, they were brought back into the land of Israel, then God lifted the famine. We can see how what David did and the actions of what happened, it symbolized the end of Israel's blood guilt. It also symbolized God's pleasure in the payment of retribution for innocent blood. Notice what I said. God's pleasure. God's pleasure in the payment of retribution for innocent blood. This atonement, it lifted the discipline of God. It, it, it took care of the famine. And if, if, if we were there that day, we would have been torn between celebration and sorrow. Because on one hand, the famine is gone. Life can go back to normal. We, we, can, we can eat when we want to eat. Uh, people will not starve to death. And so imagine a celebration of that, but then imagine the public display of what it took to get there. So it's this, it's, it's this celebration, yet it's, 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 it's sorrowful. It's a combination of the two that is happening. But even what is done here is not, it's not final. It, it only took care of this specific punishment. Only the famine was lifted. 
In other words, it deferred the final judgment of God for the sins or the sins of the people. This atonement of these seven men didn't wipe away their sin. It didn't make them clean. It didn't make them right before God. It didn't do anything like that. It just atoned for the blood guilt that they were being disciplined for. Now, when we look at the New Testament, the New Testament proclaims this. And it talks about the Israelites' sacrificial system, the Old Testament, and how it was ineffective. Hebrews chapter 10. I want to read from verses 1 through 4. It says there in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. That's the proclamation of the gospel. That's the issue with what was happening in our text. Yes, there was atonement. Yes, the discipline of God was lifted. Yes, the famine was gone, but yet sin still remained on these people. Hebrews continues, Hebrews chapter 10. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Speaking of the sacrifice. If they perfected those who drew near, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away that is the dilemma that the Israelites were in. In fact, before we came to Christ, that was the dilemma we were in. There was nothing we could do to take away our sins. If we tried to be good people, we could never be good enough. If we tried to balance out our good and our bad, and hopefully our, our good would be more than our bad, it, it wouldn't even be close. Our bad is always more than our good. If we tried to pray a special prayer, um, if we tried to offer God a good life, if tried to make promises to him, if we tried to say, I'm going to serve you for the rest of my life, so then therefore I, I, I ask that you save me and that, that I'm able to be in heaven with you, even, even that wouldn't work. There, there is nothing that we could offer God. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. For it is impossible for us to do anything ourselves to take away sin. So, where does that leave us? It leaves us in the same place as the Israelites. It leaves us as people who are in need for someone to atone for our sin. We're in the exact same place. So by now you can see the picture that this passage has painted for us. We are them. They are us. We are them because we are cursed by sin. And, and, and we feel that curse every single day. You don't remember the day you were born, but the day you were born, that day our bodies began to die. 
from that day forward. We, we, we look at it a different way, and this is where I, this is where I get to be negative and, and no one gets to judge me here because it's the gospel. But from the day you were born, we look at it as, oh, they're growing up. What's really happening is, oh, no, they're dying. All of us. In reality, from the day we are born, we are, our physical bodies are aging. We are dying in a sense. Though outwardly we are wasting away, the Bible says. So from the day we were born, our bodies begin to die. Though we are alive in the flesh, we are born spiritually dead. This is a result of the sins of our, of our figurehead, Adam. From birth, everything that we partake in is cursed by God. Everything that we do. From when we were children, everything that we do is just a reminder of the curse. Every pain that we feel, every heartache that we experience, every loss that we experience. Every sin that we commit, it's all a reminder of the curse. So when we look at our lives, essentially we are stained not only by blood guilt, but we are stained by every sin that we commit against God. You and I, we are in serious need We are stuck in this perpetual cycle of sin that the Bible describes. Romans chapter 7. I'm going to read to you here verses 21 through 25. For I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. How many of you can say amen to that? That is, that is a daily struggle. There, there is something in you, there is, there is the spirit of God in you that, 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 that puts it in you to do right. And you set out every single day to do right, and by the time you know it, you're doing wrong. And, and it's just this battle. Even when you recognize you're doing wrong, you can't stop the wrong that you're doing. You start to try to do right, and then you begin to do right, and then all of a sudden, here comes the wrong again. And, and, and you're like, what's wrong with me? The Bible tells you what's wrong with you. Evil lies close at hand. Paul says, for I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He says, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then the proclamation of all proclamations, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Therein lies our only hope. And our only hope is Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. When we look at that verse and we look at this whole situation, all of this, this atonement that we needed, it, it took place at the cross. That's why there is no Jesus on our cross. He's not there. He paid the price. He was buried. On the third day, he rose. He ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's seated in glory and power. and He's interceding on our behalf. We serve a living God. He is risen. Not only is he risen, but his earthly ministry had purpose and he achieved that purpose perfectly. He was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. As you sit here and you enjoy this peace with God, as you sit here and you have this hope that is in you, as you sit here and, 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 and you think about how and who you were before Christ and and, and how you're forgiven by him. Yeah, you're not who you should be, but you're not who you used to be. As you sit here and enjoy all these blessings, they're all due to the fact that Christ went to the cross. As you go home and you enjoy your family and you enjoy barbecue, fried chicken, peach cobbler, ice cream, whatever it is that you want to enjoy, or you just want to take a nap, you're probably going to need a nap after eating all that stuff. As you go home and do that, that is a blessing from God because of the cross. Everything, all blessings come from the cross. We are forgiven. Our sins have been paid. We're not sitting here wondering who's going who's gonna to do this for us. How are we ever going to be with God? That was Thomas's question. How do we know where you're going? How do we know where you're going? How, how, how are we going to get there? Jesus says, you know me. You know me. So therefore, you know the Father. You know the way. The greatest thing any of us can achieve in this life, the greatest blessing that can be given to us, is that we know Christ crucified. That we know the power of his resurrection. That, that, is, that is the greatest thing. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, but when Christ died, or excuse me, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That is you and I. He has perfected us by covering our sins. We are being sanctified. We are growing into the image of God, but we don't ever have to worry about our salvation. We don't ever have to worry about our standing with God. Christ has made a way for you not to be the object of God's wrath. God has, Christ has made a way for you to avoid 
being a spectacle of shame before all of creation. That's one thing that really, as far as symbolism here, that's one thing that really captured my mind in this passage. The whole thing that this, this ceremony of, of removing the blood guilt, how it was a, a public display and, and how harsh it was. Everybody, everybody was, everybody's eyes were on it. It, it. it just, it just took me to the final judgment. And it took me to the final judgment, and, and I began to think about how public that's going to be. And, and how shameful that's going to be. And, and that's a moment, we, we can't really even put that into thoughts. It, I tried to, but it, it's, just, it's just hard to put into thoughts of what that's going to look like. But for those who are in Christ, Christ has, he has, he has saved us from the object of God's wrath, whatever that's going to be. And he has made us avoid uh, being a spectacle of shame before, not just before a group of people, but before all of creation. Christ has lift the curse of sin upon your life. And he has revived you spiritually. Christ is the Savior and Lord of your life. If, if we had nothing and we only had that, we should still celebrate life. Sometimes we get our priorities wrong and we begin to feel sorry for ourselves, and there's a lot of us going through a lot of different things. But I, I'm here to tell you, brother and sister, if you have Christ, you have everything you need. The, the gospel proclaims that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that, Christ, that, Christ, that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. Now, all these wonderful promises that I talk to you about, I talk to you as God's church. But I understand not everybody here is part of God's church. God's church is always growing. God's spirit is always adding people to his church. So I, I understand that completely. That's why I shared with you Romans chapter 10, verses 8 and 9. Those promises only apply to those who have confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and they have believed in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. In other words, don't place your faith in yourself or don't place your faith in anything else, but place your faith in Christ. He is the only one who can make you right with God. Believe in him, serve him, love him, and have hope that he will return take you to be where he is at. I tell you that today is the day of salvation to the glory of God. Let us pray.